0: Welcome to the Broadcast Dialogue Podcast, the show all about the media industry in Canada. Here it goes. Oh, it's a swinging radio, tune to the Duff Roman Show. Oh, the music is great, and so away we go, the Duff Roman Show. Now oh, the monkey's not you, Ruddy, the monkeys,
1: Cuddly toy.
0: That's Duff Roman on 1050 Chum back in February 1968. In March, the former head of the Chum Radio Network, who has now been in the radio and music business for more than six decades, will receive the Walt Grealis Special Achievement Award from the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, Duff Roman. My first question is did you know Walt Grealis, the man who uh, the special achievement award is named for
1: Absolutely I knew Walt very very well uh, Walt was a uh, record promoter uh, for London Records and uh, he was a very uh, very pleasant very intelligent very well, well-mannered individual so he would come in with his records and he would uh, he would explain their virtues and Occasionally, we'd go out for a coffee and uh, talk about music, but he always seemed to me sort of a a, a more intellectual, more intelligent kind of uh, fellow uh, who uh, had strong feelings about the Canadian music industry and about what was or wasn't being done for uh, Canadian artists, sporting artists, that kind of thing. So I wasn't surprised when, uh, a few years later, uh, Walt founded uh, RPM, and uh, I've sort of been a uh, fan and, in fact, uh, a business associate of his partner, Stan Cleese. We, uh, we operated a cooperative record label for a while called Redleaf. In answer to your question, uh, yes, I uh, knew Walt quite well. Um, when I moved off the air and more into the into, uh, the uh, administrative side, the executive side of Chum. Uh, I sort of lost direct contact uh, with with him, but uh, have always been a great admirer.
0: So, what does receiving this award mean to you?
1: I, uh, it's it's really hard to put in words. It's it's the kind of recognition that uh, almost induces mixed emotions. It's it's called uh, an award for uh, individuals whose work has significantly impacted the growth and development of the Canadian music industry. Um, I, I'm very honored by this, but it almost, uh, in a sense, seems to be like a capper on a career, sort of like uh, a punctuation mark. And I'm still uh, full of energy and vigor, and uh, you know, just uh, I'm not going to sort of fade into the background and be this, uh, this sort of uh, senior presence, uh, nodding off to sleep at meetings and things. I, I'm very much involved with the music industry and the digital side of radio, and still enjoying all of the things that I do. So I am very honored, very humbled by it, very proud. Um, but I don't look at, at, at it as a kind of finale to, to whatever I've been doing. That, uh, that's not over yet.
0: So take us back to the beginning. What are your earliest memories of music and radio? I assume that it was always uh, a love for you.
1: It, it really was. And, and I think my path uh, may not be the same path taken by many of my broadcasting colleagues. I grew up on the prairies, and um, when I was uh, finishing my high school in the 50s, um, we lived just outside of the town of uh, city of Swift Current. And at that point, uh, we had not been electrified, so we didn't have electricity. So my outlet to the world essentially was a battery-operated radio, and it was one of those larger... Clumsy uh, radios that had large A and B batteries, and uh, one was a wet cell, and the other was this huge block of uh, of, uh, of battery, and um, it 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 really presented a sort of uh, a doorway to many things that were almost magical to me. Uh, you know, the, the the main purpose, as far as my father was concerned, was to listen to the news, and basically coming out of World War II. That was a ritual. you had to hear the suppertime news and sort of get caught up on things, but as long as there was juice in the batteries, I was always uh, scanning the available stations and one of the one of the technical freaks of AM radio is that, uh, depending on the weather conditions, AM radio can travel for thousands of miles. In fact, there are clubs called DXers that shorts for long, short for long distance, and they send out cards from. Oslo, Norway, and they say, at such and such a time, I was listening to Chum Radio and you were playing, oh, something like Hold My Hand by the Beatles, and they would give the time, and then you'd you'd sign the card and send it back to them to confirm that uh, they had actually picked up our signal. So that kind of magical technology entered in my life as a kid, and I'd be listening to uh, a radio station, in particular, from California. And it was here that I heard something called Hit Parade Radio. It wasn't even called Top 50 or Top 40, but it was a radio station that played nothing but hits. And it was just breathtakingly magical. And in particular, uh, these, uh, these long-wave transmissions would travel at night. When the ionosphere cooled, uh, there was, uh, as I said, a freak transmission uh, occurrence in which the uh, the broadcasting waves would bounce off the ionosphere and skip over long distances. And because it was a skip kind of motion, uh, you couldn't depend on getting that signal for, you could have it for five minutes, you could have it for half an hour. But uh, it, it gave you reasonably good, uh, good uh, quality uh, sound, and I could hear, and this was my favorite show, uh, the all-night house party, Sponsored by Shakey's Pizza Parlor in the, San Ber- the voice of the San Bernardino Valley in California. And uh, to me, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about pre-teen years, I already knew where I wanted to be. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know what it really took to get there. I'd never been inside a radio station. But somehow I wanted to be on the radio. So uh, that's the kind of childhood I had. No phone, no electricity. And depending 100 um, percent on that battery radio for any kind of diversion or entertainment that wasn't reading or or making your own music at home.
0: So how did you make that a reality? How does a nice Ukrainian boy from the prairies, uh, you know, end up the head of of Chum Radio and uh, you know pioneer a record <laughs> label uh, in the process?
1: Well. Um, I, I, it's, it's funny. For my whole life, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of dominoes have to line up, and uh, and things do seem to get done. Uh, I guess directly uh, directly proportional to the effort you put in, but but there's also, I think, um, a degree of good fortune. My father happened to be with the railroad, and uh, I had a radio or um, uh, railroad passes available to me. So um, I was uh, age 16, still in high school, sort of the youngest in my class, a bit precocious, I guess I would say, and I started to make uh, these, uh, ra- uh, these uh, railroad trips, train trips, uh, out of home near Swift Current, which did not have a local radio station at that time. So I literally went out in a sort of a fanning uh, radius to uh, Moose Jaw, to North Battleford, to uh, Saskatoon. I wound up going to to Medicine Hat, Alberta, and it was there where it first clicked, where somebody actually gave me uh, some validation and said, you know, you probably would be good on the radio, but you're going to need some work and you're going to need some training. So this happened during the spring break in 1955 that I got this encouraging uh, recommendation or this encouraging uh, critique of what I had done. And, Connie, I have to tell you that I had never heard my voice uh, played back until that time. I had been to the other radio stations, and they basically said, you sound too young, thanks, but no thanks. But they played it back to me, and I didn't even recognize it. I think maybe the first time you heard your voice played back, you might have thought, is that really me? And so I, uh, I sort of listened to that voice, and I said, well, I'm better than that voice. I don't know who that was. And they came in and said, well... Uh, David, which was my real name, uh, that was you. What do you think? I said, well, I, I think I do sound pretty young. And they said, well, we see something there. And when we're ready to train somebody, we'll get in touch with you. So, Connie, I, I uh, had no desire to go to university, although I certainly had the marks. So I took on a construction job uh, in, in the summer of 1955. And lo and behold, in uh, late July, I got a letter. And it was uh, it was postmarked Medicine Hat, and it was C H E T Chat Radio, Chat in the Hat, and it uh, invited me to come to Medicine Hat, and they would take me on as a announcer trainee, and uh, could I start at uh, I think it was the 15th of August. So by then I'd been making making great strides in the construction uh, business. <laughs> I uh, my my morning lift to the construction site was the actual foreman or manager of the construction site. He quite, he quite liked me. And I had to break the news to him that uh, I wasn't going to continue in the construction business anymore. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I've got a radio job. And what he said to me was, what do you know about fixing a radio? So I said, no, no, I, I'm not going to fix them. I'm going to be on them. Well, that was even a greater stretch for him, imagining this acne kid uh, being on the radio, uh, it, you know, because radio really, there was no television then, at least not in Western Canada, was still that, that amazing, magical medium. So that was it. I uh, I uh, quit my construction job and uh, uh, w- awaited the 15th of August so I could hop a train and head off to Medicine Hat.
0: Right, and Digger Dave was born.
1: Well, Dave Mostaway, which is my family name, was born. Uh, Digger Dave came about uh, a number of radio stations later when I was in Edmonton in 1959. All of us had to have a handle. There was uh, uh, Bob Wood was Woodenhead, um, John Dolan was Fognoggin, and my name was Digger Dave. So that's the name I took to Toronto with me in 1959 in in November. And uh, it was there that, uh, well, I was there by by invitation and, and hired by Jack Kent Cooke, the infamous uh, entrepreneur. And I'd been on the air for a few months, uh, and um, Jack Kent Cooke was already out there sort of doing business in the U.S. and uh, becoming the, the legend that that he became. And he had heard me on the air, he quite liked what he heard, because I was part of this new wave of announcers, replacing the old mellow announcers, the ones with the great deep baritone voices, but didn't sound good playing rock and roll music. So he said, "No, no." He says, uh, you, "You've got something going there, but uh, that Dave Mostaway name has got to has got to go." I said, "Well, it's my, my my name. It's my family name." And he said, "Well, do you think Jack Kent Cook is a real name?" I said, "Well, I, I, I thought it was." He said, "Don't be silly." So let's look at some names for you. So we essentially sat down at the uh, at a table desk in the in the in the music uh, uh, library. And we put names together, various names, you know, like tie clip, uh, 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 you know, a Mack truck, all all this, all the silly things that we were, we were we were we were we were sort of throwing around. And Duff was uh, what my older brother used to call me. Instead of Dave, he called me uh, Duffy for Davy, and just came out Duff, and that became a nickname of mine. And Roman was my younger brother, uh, who also went into radio under the name Dan Roman, but his his birth name was Roman. Uh, not Raymond, and we put Duff and Roman together, and it clicked for both of us. We looked at it and said that 's it it 's different, but it 's not crazy uh, let's let 's do it." And so off I went to go on the air. now i 'd been on the air for a couple of months, so I said to Mr. Cook, "How do we handle this? Uh, you know like i 've been bigger Dave all this time he said, and he used to talk like a cartoonist that you 've maybe heard on on talk shows named Al Cap. And he had that twang, and that was the way uh, Jack Cook talked. He said, damn it, Dave, Uh, those people will forget you in a day. Trust me. I said, you mean just go on as Duff Roman? He said, yes, just go on as Duff Roman. So I do. I go on the air, and the phone rings, and people are saying, oh, you're not Duff Roman. You're that Digger Dave guy. And, you know, in, in two or three days, it all died down. People got used to my new name. And I guess uh, I hadn't been there forever. So it didn't, uh, the adjustment didn't take long. And I think essentially, there's there's always a bit of role playing in radio. People use their imaginations and minds and they sort of have an idea of what you look like. And invariably, unless they've seen a picture of you, they don't even come close to what you actually look like. So there's still a lot of theater of the mind and magic of radio. And all you 've got is the audio with no picture to go along with it
0: so while while you're uh, you know sort of experiencing this meteoric rise in broadcasting uh, you co-found a record label with your brother can you can you talk about about how that came about
1: well i uh, i'd always been uh, into the music. my father was a really excellent violinist and uh, he played a Ukrainian instrument called a cymbala, and he was one of the few, country, or few people in western Canada who could not only play the cymbala, very few who could tune these uh, multi-string instruments, and I don't know of anyone else who could make them. So that was the kind of family I grew up in, but uh, I, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, the, the musician gene. Uh, my father taught me, to, or tried to teach me to play violin, he try, tried to teach me to play cymbala, but after about seven weekends, it would be like weekly Sunday lessons with me supposedly practicing during the week. Uh, there came one Sunday afternoon when I started to saw on the violin that he simply said, Duff, aren't your friends out there playing ball? I said, or Dave, aren't your friends out there playing ball? I said, yeah, Dad. And he just nodded at me, and that was it. I, I, I didn't take another music lesson after that. But the idea of music and the magic of music and and how important music is in our lives was always there with me. And I got terribly frustrated. I'd been going to local high schools doing record hops. That's uh, where DJs take their box of records out and they spin records at, uh, at noontime or when they're having a sock hop, that kind of thing. Uh, it promoted the station, but it, it was also good money, I, 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 and I did a lot of them, but there'd often be some local band that would play at intermission, and uh, I'd get to know these bands, and I was a guy playing records by the young artists of the time, the Frankie Avalons and the, uh, uh, the Fabians and all of those people, and I'd hear these local bands and think they were pretty darn good. So I had contacts in the, in the music business as a DJ. They were always after me to try and play these new records, which were invariably uh, from the U.S. And back then, uh, the British invasion really hadn't struck. So it was really what the stations were mainly playing was, uh, was, uh, was, uh, was American music. And, and I, I was told to in no uncertain terms that they didn't spend money on, on recording a local artists their job was to sell the, the, the music that they got from head office. And that really frustrated me. I, 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 I thought there has to be a way. And because there was really no one in the field at the time in the early 60s, uh, very few people were, were brave enough to venture into producing records and taking a chance with Canadian acts. But my brother and I, being uh, young and stupid, thought we should do it. If, if, it it's an uncrowded field. Uh, there's no competition. Nobody else is doing it. We knew why, ultimately. There's not much money to be made in it. But we, uh, we decided that we'd do it. <clears throat> so in any event, uh, not only was I thinking of getting a record label, but I had already started an after-hours club in Yorkville called The Brave New World. So as you can see, there definitely was an entrepreneurial gene in my, in my makeup. And uh, I'd have live local bands, and uh, they were really quite good. And uh, there was this punk that would show up uh, late at night. Uh, we were essentially an after-hours uh, club. We we didn't have a liquor license. And he'd come. Uh, this uh, this person would come from uh, uh, one of those uh, high school dances or some local event. And it turned out to be somebody named Sonny Thomas. <clears throat> and he had a band called the Shays. And he used to bother me as the club owner. He'd say, "Oh, I'm much better than your house band. Uh, those guys are nothing. You should hear me." And um, I just kept brushing him off. And I'd also been warned about this guy being recently out of prison and uh, very, very dangerous and don't get involved with him. But he was, uh, you know, he had a good personality and he was very persistent. He'd always show up and he'd always try and make himself available. And in the old showbiz tradition, my house band, uh, somehow or other, all the members didn't show up and they, they, they weren't ready to go on. So... David had already arrived with his group, and they used to just hang out hoping that they'd get a break. And I turned to David, and I said, uh, or Sonny, as his name was then, are you guys ready to set up and play? He said, oh, are we ready? He like, give us 10 minutes. So uh, down they went to their car. They had a little trailer with their instruments in and They brought everything up. They set up, and I had not heard them sing. I just heard that in spite of him being this ex-prison uh, ex, uh, uh, inmate, uh, uh he had the good pipes good voice so uh he uh, he uh, he stands up there and he sings john lee hooker's boom boom and it blew us away it was amazing and i thought oh my goodness who is this guy and uh, that was it uh at that point uh we we said you know what We aren't going to be calling on American record companies on their branch plants in Toronto. We are really going to get serious about our own record label. So at that point, because we had that kind of talent, uh, we put uh, David into the studio, and we recorded Boom Boom, and right out of the box, it was a top 40 chum chart hit. So, you know, at that point, you think you can do no wrong, and frankly, we really couldn't. We had five consecutive chum chart hits. The last thing we did with David was our biggest hit, number one, uh, a song about the Vietnam War called Brainwashed, and uh, it just blew everybody away, not just the the listeners and the consumers, the buyers, but other musicians. We had an excellent band. David always had great musicians. By then, he had a new band called The Boss Men, and he had handpicked everybody he wanted on this band, which he does to this day and and it was really it was it was commercial in the sense that people bought lots of the record but musicians liked it because it was very musical and uh, we tried to break in the US we uh, we did everything we could but they weren't quite ready yet to be told that the war in Vietnam was wrong that it was uh, was hurting uh, the uh, the soldiers and uh, it was uh, uh, it was wrong for for the US in in uh, so many ways uh, unfair in Vietnam, and basically uh, the the gist of the song was we've all been brainwashed, brainwashed by the government, brainwashed by the media, brainwashed by advertising. And uh, as I said, it uh, it uh, struck a real chord in Canada, but uh, they they essentially uh, they they essentially buried it in the U.S. Uh, we got a passing mention on the Billboard magazine, but no one would pick it up and go with it. It also had the word damn in it, which was another excuse to, uh, to not play it. So, uh, frankly, that was 1966, and uh, that was sort of it um, uh, in terms of the day-to-day production. But I have to tell you, uh, Connie, what I had done in those short four years with my brother Dan. We were the first producers of Leave On and the Hawks after they left Ronnie Hawkins. Our, our, our six-track uh, recording session was used by uh, Levon and the Hawks to interest Bob Dylan in taking them seriously as his new backup band when he chose to leave acoustic and go electric. So I have that in my resume, that, that we were the first producers of Robbie Robertson and Leon and the Hawks, Levon Helm, uh, Garth Hudson. We also, we also were, the, uh, were the first uh, producers and managers of The Poppers, and you might uh, know a song called If I Call You Some by Name, by Some Name. That was uh, what eventually, the, that was the kind of music the Poppers actually did uh, after we had groomed them and, and had a couple of, of, of minor local hits called Sooner Than Soon and Never Send You Flowers. Uh, I recorded a Little Season of the Consoles, who um, eventually wound up doing uh, Hang On Sloopy as a big hit for. Uh, for my uh, my red leaf partner Stan Cleese, and again uh, Walt Grealis' partner so Walt Grealis, again surfaces in sort of my circle of contacts and friends so that's that's uh, that's uh, a bit of the story in a nutshell in the meantime I was uh, sort of maintaining my radio career and uh, after after um, we couldn't break in the US with brainwash and we really exhausted our resources at that point I t- started to take radio very seriously and said, well, I I think I know where my fortunes uh, lie and uh, I'm going to be the best radio person I can be. So uh, at that point, uh, I had uh, already moved from CKEY, Jack Kent Cook Station, to Alan Waters Station, uh, Chum. And I was a DJ on 1050 Chum until 1968. And then I moved away from Chum to do a morning show in Winnipeg. And then within a few years, I was uh, rehired by Alan Waters to come into uh, Toronto uh, from Winnipeg in 1974 to uh, reposition uh, Chum FM uh, as the program director to take it from uh, underground progressive into something called AOR, album-oriented rock. Uh, I had uh, done a pretty good job with the station I was uh, working with in Winnipeg, uh, made it number one in one year. So my credentials were there, and Alan really didn't think he was taking a very big chance with me, but I can tell you those very hip disc jockeys working at Chum FM weren't uh, weren't that pleased that this uh, former AM Top 40 disc jockey was going to come in and, and be their boss uh, at Chum FM, but we fixed that up pretty quickly. We got them excited about the album-oriented rock format. I didn't have to fire anybody. They all got the they all got the memo, as the saying goes, and uh, uh, we started to really plow ahead. And uh, by 1977, uh, Chum FM was the number one FM station in Canada. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very proud of, of that as one of my radio accomplishments.
0: Fantastic stories. I mean, you know, these stories are really part of the fabric of, of Canadian music history.
1: I, I, I think they are. I, I, I've i had... Uh, in the past, and sort of as you as you reach of a certain age, and people start to do the calculation, they say, "If Duff Roman's been in radio since 1955, maybe we'd better start talking to him and interviewing him for the for the archives." So uh, essentially, I've I've uh, I've I've gotten sort of immodest by saying things like, "I'm sort of the last man standing. When I pass, it will be history. You'll have to look me up on Wikipedia, or you'll have to." You'll have to do history studies. If you want first-person descriptions, uh, I've still got them. As long as my mind is lucid and I've got enough energy to talk to you, uh, uh, yeah, I'd like to put a lot of things on the record. And and, and frankly, that's been happening a lot recently, and I've enjoyed uh, every moment in, uh, of the interviews and just talking about the oral sort of the oral history of Canadian radio and Canadian music because in a sense when I started in nineteen fifty five I came in with rock and roll. I came in with Elvis, I came in with Little Richard, I came in with Bill Haley. And what's also interesting, Connie, is that with with that watershed, when when popular music switched into what was originally black soul music, uh, and very ghettoized back in the 50s. There were white stations and black stations, especially in the U.S., not so much in Canada. But all of this music was crossing over in the form of doo-wop, and, uh, and uh, white, uh, white groups like the, the crew cuts and uh, the Diamonds were covering, another word for stealing in a sense, uh, the, the original hits from, from uh, the black community. So if you heard Shaboom by the crew cuts, uh, you could also hear it, uh, Shaboom by the chords, similarly lil darlin i can 't remember if it was the Moonglows or who the other the original group was, but the arrangements were fairly close but the 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 white groups the crew cuts and 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 the diamonds were fairly sanitized they didn't have that that tone that sort of that edge and i always I always opted for the original as as often as I could, but I give props to uh, the crew cuts and uh and the Diamonds and the Four Lads, they were Canada's first popular hits, and they were sensations. I mean, Shaboom was a number one hit, uh, as were many Four Lads, and Lil Darlin, another number one hit. And they were all pretty much out of St. Mike's uh, uh, Choir School in Toronto, and they were they were quartets, and they were white versions of the black doo-wop groups. So, uh, all just, you know, as I say... Uh, Having been around from the very beginnings of, of rock radio and the beginnings of rock and roll and the beginnings of Canadian content on the radio and still being actively engaged, I'm very giving of whatever I, I remember or whatever I, I think I'm knowledgeable about. And I'm very anxious to get it into some format or, format or, 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 or storage system uh, that will save that for people so they, can, so they can sort of get it from the horse's mouth. I'm also a director of the Canadian Broadcast Museum Foundation. Chronically underfunded, but that's our mission, and that is to, uh, to uh, historically digitize uh, the, uh, the radio uh, uh, programs of public and private radio and public and private TV.
0: You've been involved on the front lines of the analog to digital shift. Do you want to talk about the e-radio project that you're involved with?
1: Well, I, I will, uh, and I'll just, I'll just uh, sort of set the table here for you. I was very much involved with the shift of digital uh, analog to digital radio. E-radio is using radio in a different, in a different format, and I'll come to that uh, after I answer what I think your real question was, and that is in the early 90s, uh, Europe uh, was uh, diligently developing a technology uh, under a system called Eureka 147. It was just a file that the engineers used in in Europe to digitize analog radio. And uh, when they finally uh, developed it, uh, the technology to a point where it could be commercialized, it became DAB, DAB, digital audio broadcasting, and it it, it was. A very exciting development. It turned the uh, day-to-day radio signal into a sound that was better than CD quality. The uh, spectrum frequency range, the highs, the lows, was just crystal clear. Just, it was absolutely state-of-the-art technology. Our association, the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, uh, set me up as the, as the point person for Canada. So I became the president of something called Digital Radio Rollout and uh, went about uh, uh, explaining and demonstrating the virtues of this Amer- European uh, digital radio system across Canada. We installed digital radio transmitters in Victoria, in uh, Toronto, in Montreal, in Halifax, and in Ottawa. Um, and, and essentially got a commitment from all the Canadian broadcasters that at the appropriate time they would switch from analog AM and FM and they would go to this new digital radio uh, called DAB. Now, the key here is that uh, digital radio was going to operate in a, an international piece of spectrum, and all spectrum in the world is negotiated uh, by something called WORK, world administrative radio council work there was so much bandwidth that the system required competitors to share bandwidth so that you could put 10 stations 12 stations into that one signal and it would be subdivided there would be deci- decimal points and there'd be a uh, a grid of 10 to 12 stations in 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 one frequency and they would all operate out of a single pod as it was called and they in Toronto they were all up at the CN Tower they were all ready to go if you had a digital radio from Europe uh, you could actually listen to all of the stations in Toronto in digital radio unfortunately it, and I'll tell you why it did not go commercial but if you had a digital radio you could hardly wait for for uh, uh, all of the radio stations to adopt this new thing called DAB so part of the uh, part of the mission with the CAB, Canadian Association of Broadcasters, was uh, the reality in most things economic is we can't really go far with Canadian technologies if the Americans aren't on side. So we really felt that uh, it would be hard to have uh, importers bring in European radios or, or, or Asian radios if the, if the Americans weren't on side, that there wouldn't be a big enough market for them and that in a sense we would always have that issue with border crossing and that, having to switch from Canadian DAB to American analog. So uh, my mission was to get the Americans interested and committed. Well, I did that, uh, Connie. I, uh, my team and I accomplished that uh, with the National Association of Broadcasters in Washington. They undertook a commitment that by a certain date, they would also switch from analog AM and FM to uh, the DAB, uh, digital audio broadcasting in the L-band. They needed to formalize it, so they called a meeting in Washington. I was invited as the Canadian speaker, and uh, it was—it was, uh, it was uh, their auditorium was packed, uh, packed to the walls with people. And I dealt with a lot of people, primarily technical people, and a few a few very enlightened uh, executive types who just love this uh, this technology. But these were these were a whole bunch of people in three. Three, uh, three-piece suits and, uh, and, uh, and vests, and uh, very sleek and very polished-looking people, also some fairly eccentric-looking characters. And it turned out these were the actual owners of the radio stations, and they were having what was called a fly-in, where really important uh, industry-impacting events would have to be voted on by the actual owners, not their representatives. So after I did my pitch and uh, the NAB spokespersons got up and talked about the virtues of digital audio broadcasting, uh, the American ownership tore into us. They, uh, they said that the idea of sharing that pod with their competitors was socialist and probably typical of a left-wing country like Canada. They uh, basically said that uh, they couldn't abandon their FM transmitters because uh, their banking and their financing... Was dependent on them having assets that weren't just pure air. Like in other words, you couldn't sell uh, your 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 signal like your, your, the fact that people liked you. Uh, that was worth a certain amount of goodwill. But the uh, the bankers always like to have hard hard goods or equity or or property, and they weren't going to be shutting down their transmitters in order to accommodate this new technology. So they voted it down. Like it took all of two hours from our glowing presentation about D.A.B. to these characters saying, nothing doing. And so they undertook a resolution that they would find, quote-unquote, an American solution to, to digital. And off they went. And uh, they've, they've stayed in the, in the hinterlands of, of technology for decades until just recently. Uh, there's been a move to sort of wake radio up again, and they've, they've, they've come up with this technology that requires uh, you to keep your analog signal. It's called HD radio, and it's the IBOX system. That's an acronym for in-band, on-channel. And what they did is they buried a digital signal in the existing analog signal so that you got something close to digital radio, but with none of the bandwidth and, uh, and uh, um, frequency fidelity that the European DAB had. But I have to grant that it was an improvement on AM and a slight improvement on FM. But it was digital, and digital allows you to do a number of different interesting things that you can't do with, with purely analog. So it might, be, it might be too little too late. We're also faced with streaming services that are trying to entice radio to abandon their transmitters as well and to just become another uh, Internet streaming service. That has all kinds of ramifications because once you go Internet, you open up the world. So uh, you wouldn't just have local competition. You'd suddenly be competing with thousands of Internet stations. And it really makes it uh, important that whatever we do is very local and and, and can identify with a local community. And we've spent so much time with uh, radio currently trying to affect savings and economies that uh, we do a lot of recorded programming. Uh, we have uh, uh, limited on-air staff. We're uh, sort of music-driven. Uh, the personality has been taken out of radio except for the morning shows. And uh, it's a pretty bland experience. It's like essentially listening to an Internet radio station. So, yeah, I think there are, there are issues in radio. I, I hope that, uh, that uh, HD radio will be part of the solution. Uh, certainly the newspapers have had their challenges. They're not what they once used to be. And I'm afraid that both AM and FM radio are under siege as well here. So there's, uh, that, that's the sort of sad story of, of digital radio being adopted very, very late in the game. Now, what e-radio is, is uh, a technology I've invested in and personally uh, and helping guide the fortunes of e-radio. But e-radio is a technology that uh, we learned as a result of the failure of, of the DAB system that we could use analog radio for some limited digital transmissions. And so e-radio is a green technology. It's designed to manage the electrical load and manage the electrical grid. And in layman's terms, what that means is we use FM radio to send the signal to appliances like hot water tanks, and we turn them on and off automatically so that when electricity is cheap, you heat your tank uh, when electricity is expensive, you use the thermal energy in the tank as long as it stays hot, and you just tweak it as required uh, in order that you would have hot water to do the dishes or take a shower. That's taken uh, a few years to catch on, but we're now working with the largest uh, electronic uh, electricity provider in the U.S., Duke uh, Electricity, and uh, we're uh, now entering our first commercial rollout in uh, Seattle and uh, in in uh, Portland, Oregon,
0: we've covered quite a bit of this already. But uh, you know, we talk a lot about the future of radio on this podcast. What do you think the future of Canadian radio looks like?
1: Cars replaced buggies. <laughs> uh, uh, electrical cars are replacing internal combustion-driven cars. So, do we know what the ultimate? platform is going to be for what we know as local radio. Well, your guess is as good as mine, but whether it's uh, radio or or music, it's all about content. So my sort of uh, words of wisdom to the radio business is produce more and better content, uh, try and be more local, even though it's more expensive to do local newscasts and to do talk uh, uh, elements for for uh, music-oriented stations, uh, if you don't do those things, how will you be distinguished from Internet stations from anywhere in the world? How will you be distinguished from, uh, uh, from uh, applications that track your listening habits and create formats specific to, specifically to you as a listener? So for, for radio and for, for the music industry, produce good content. Uh, it'll find its way to the appropriate platform and no one can uh, realistically exactly predict the future, but you can look at the history of how we got to where we are, and you can look in real time at where the shifts are going in terms of listenership and and viewing audience. Uh, There were smart people who decades ago uh, invested in something called Top 40 Radio. Alan Waters was one of those people when he essentially brought Top 40 to Canada, uh, on 1050 Chum, all of the smart people in, in, in the 1950s thought he was nuts, thought that it was kids' music, that they didn't have any spending money, that uh, it was very loud and very noisy, and he weathered all of that stuff. And really, it was quite a tough slog for him, and uh, he persevered, and, uh, and essentially he, he had picked the winning horse in the race. And the other radio operators, he either had to adapt or die. So it's not a new thing. Uh, similarly, uh, everyone thought radio would die when television came along. Like, who would want just sound only when you could have sound and pictures? And I'm old enough to remember that. I, remember, I, I was around with the introduction of television, and there was a bump that radio took. The first thing that happened to radio back then, and this is from first-person knowledge, is that the big shows on radio were in the evening. But when television arrived, it booted radio's ass out of the evening and created uh, morning shows. Because the morning shows, uh, essentially, were the second most important uh, time shift, time slot. So that's adaptability, to face up to challenges and change. And I wouldn't count out radio, and I don't count out music. I think that they've got entrepreneurial, creative people that are going to figure it all out.
0: So all those years ago, did you still think that you would be working in radio and music at age 80. <laughs> I,
1: no, honestly, no. But I, I as, a, as a kid, I used to have visions of, 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 like, airplane flight was really esoteric. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like, and also my dad was a railroader, right? So, And the train was the most used way of people moving from point to point. Uh, you know, planes were exotic, but I always had this vision of flying in somewhere and actually being needed by somebody and stepping off a plane and and being greeted by people. It used to be like a dream, sort of a hazy, hazy dream that one day I would be doing work that was important enough that they would have to fly me somewhere. So uh, that was a pipe dream. No, I... I, uh, I uh, didn't get to university until a number of years later. In fact, that call from Jack Kent Cooke when I was in Edmonton in 1959, I was enrolled at the University of Alberta, uh, trying to put together a backup plan because uh, my my trajectory was uh, I would get to Toronto or I or, or I would just give up and, and, and finish my university and and get a straight job a real job. And uh, when I got that call to come to Toronto in 1959. I was uh, living in a house off-campus with a bunch of other great guys, and uh, you know they they understood. I said, look, I'm just going to take a shot at this. I'll probably be back in a month, and I'll be able to pick up my studies. But Toronto has called. I've been working to this all my young life. I have to take my shot. It may never come again. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. I took the job, and I stayed, Connie.
0: Duff, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on your award.
1: Thank you uh, very much, and uh, thank you for taking the time to hear some of my ranting and reminiscing. Hey, you digging it? That's the sound of Sgt. Pepper's album, and getting better. Good groovy sounds of the Duff Roman Saturday Show, nine minutes after three o'clock.
0: Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at BroadcastDialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud.
1: I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Alison Langer.